Uh, good evening. It's, uh, it's terrific to see so many people here, especially so many new faces. Uh, I'm Roger Kimball, as probably most of you know, the editor of The New Criterion. Uh, you are lucky to be among the first to be able to get our December issue hot off the press. There are copies floating around someplace. Uh, pick one up, read it. It will change your life. You'll find a subscription form inside, and I can tell you that in addition to subscribing, uh, you can also become a friend of the new criteria. Uh, Emily, where's Emily? Oh, right here. Oh, yes. <laughs> Emily, um, Emily can help you with that, with that pursuit. If you, I know that some of you probably wake up in the morning feel, feeling that there's something missing in my life. That's what it is. Anyway, uh, um, I, I'm delighted to, um, to, to introduce uh, my, my dear friend Tony Daniels, uh, a.k.a. Theodore Dalrymple. Um, someone sent me an email saying, oh, when I realized that uh, Anthony Daniels was really Theodore Dalrymple, I decided I'm going to come tonight. So <laughs> at least <laughs> half, of, half of you is popular, Tony. So. Um, uh, Tony has uh, published a couple of books with, with uh, Encounter Books, which I have something to do with as well. And uh, his most recent book for us is The New Vichy Syndrome, just out in paperback. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word Vichy? Possibly water, but probably also uh, collaboration and capitulation to barbarism. We all know what Vichy was in the Second, Second World War, a, a collaboration with the Nazis and a capitulation uh, to tyranny. Well, the new Vichy syndrome uh, is not, it doesn't have um, uh, the same uh, fetching uniforms that the, the original Vichy syndrome had, but it, it actually may be it, at least as insidious. It too is a kind of collaboration with barbarism and a capitulation to a kind of tyranny. I mean, what's happened in Europe is quite extraordinary, partly for what happened, but partly because no one seems really to have taken on board what has happened. I mean, after all, we think of Europe as uh, a bastion of Western civilization, which means uh, a, a, a bastion of freedom and democracy and liberty and individual rights. And yet Europe is now presided over by people who are appointed, not elected, who are uh, accountable not to their not to the people, but to these bureaucrats, other bureaucrats, uh, and they have unlimited power to determine the fate of the continent of Europe. It's really, it's quite an extraordinary anti-democratic, anti-individual freedom situation in, in Europe. And of course, the, uh, the euro, which came in uh, in 1997, uh, was a sort of artificial attempt by certain uh, elites in, in Europe to impose a sort of political unity by foisting an economic unity on the continent. And we've seen uh, in recent uh, weeks and months how well that's working out. Um, well, Tony's going to talk uh, tonight about his book and about um, the new Vichy syndrome, about what's happening in Europe. Uh, you don't read about it in the New York Times, but uh, uh, we happy few are, are here to, uh, to be enlightened by someone who, who lives both in France and in England, so he, he knows, um, he knows uh, what he's talking about. Tony Daniels. 
Thank you very much, uh, Roger. Um, first, I'd like to thank you all for coming, and I would particularly uh, like to thank Nancy for her hospitality in hosting this. Uh, Nancy, Nancy, wherefore art thou, Nancy? <laughs> I would like to thank you anyway uh, very much for your generous hospitality. And it's um, very nice to be back in New York. Uh, I should perhaps tell you that the last time I was here, uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed two days later. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I went to Dublin, and the Anglo-Irish Bank collapsed, <laughs> and the whole Irish banking uh, system. But um, I don't claim a causative relationship. Um, I, I'll leave the grandiosity to something that's happened. Uh, occurring not very far from here uh, <laughs> as I speak. Um, but, um, in fact, I've um, arrived in a lot of places and civil unrest has broken out shortly afterwards. <laughs> well, some collapses are, are more sudden uh, than others. And... Uh, one can experience some collapses that are very slow uh, and graceful uh, and, uh, and one can enjoy them at one's leisure. And to be in Europe is a bit like being on the deck of the Titanic, um, and a very large Titanic, um, which is sinking as the band, uh, as the orchestra plays on, trying to persuade us that the whole is only a very small one. Um, well... The iceberg that we've struck is reality. Uh, and, uh, of course, the analogy with the Titanic is not uh, perfect um, because at least the Titanic was a tangible object, whereas the European project is more like uh, spiritualist ectoplasm. Um, <laughs> that is to say it's ethereal, uh, material, and bogus at the same time. And uh, recently I was asked by a Belgian uh, journalist, I was interviewed by a Belgian journalist, whether I believed in the European project. <clears throat> and I uh, said I would answer this question if she would tell me what the European project was. <laughs> and uh, uh, this, she thought, was not the question of a gentleman. <laughs> and so was quite unable to, uh, to say what it was, of course. And uh, 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 people like uh, the journalist and, in fact, a large part of the political class in Britain, uh, in Britain and also in uh, Europe believes that to question the European project is a kind of mental disorder. Um, Euroscepticism is actually a mental disorder. Maybe the uh, American Psychiatric Association can be... Uh, induced to include it in uh, the next uh, DSM-5. It's included everything, every other form of human behavior in it, so I don't see why not. Well, very rarely uh, do you get a, an answer of what the European project is, and, but Monsieur, uh, Mr. Barroso, the uh, president of the, um, the uh, European Commission, did say once that it was the creation of an empire. Um, and so I, I think it's kind of Habsburg Empire uh, without the Gemütlichkeit. <laughs> um, 
Well, in, in this connection, it's worth examining a, a, uh, the, uh, his great colleague, Mr. Herman van Rompuy, who uh, is the chairman of the commission. I think I've got it right. I, the chairman, president, get a bit muddled up. Um, well, Mr. Van Rompuy is a, a man who is so grey that he makes a Sunday afternoon in Aberystwyth look uh, dangerously exciting. <laughs> and when uh, Nigel Farage, a, a British member of the European Parliament, uh, was told he had to apologise uh, for saying that he had the appearance of a low-grade bank clerk, uh, Mr. Farage uh, apologised to bank clerks. Um, anyhow, Mr. Van Rompuy is a Belgian uh, and a country, that's a country which hasn't had a central government for more than 500 days. <laughs> and uh, perhaps this is taking uh, uh, limited government a little far. Um, there is a visitor, to, I'm quite a frequent visitor to Belgium, and I must say I can't really tell the difference between Belgium with a government and Belgium without a government. <laughs> um, but the reason that Belgium finds, itself, uh, finds it so difficult to have a government is because there are two large national groups in it, as you probably know, um, the French-speaking Wallonians and the Dutch-speaking Flemish. Uh, and... Uh, They've had 180 years together. Uh, but I must tell you that by far the clearest border in Europe is not between countries, but between Wallonia and uh, Flanders. There's not a word of Dutch in Wallonia and not a word of French once you cross the border into Flanders. And in fact, the Flemish will now not speak to you in French. And this is a country that is supposedly, is officially bilingual. Um, and of course, it's the, the linguistic problem is, is uh, compounded by the historical and economic uh, problem. Historically, Wallonia was both uh, culturally and economically dominant. And uh, even the Flemish upper class used to speak in French so that there's a great deal of resentment against the French uh, culture and French language in Flanders. And it was also, of course, Wallonia was economically dependent, uh, uh, dominant. But with the decline of the coal and steel industries in Flanders, uh, in, uh, in Wallonia, sorry, uh, and the rise of comparative uh, Flemish uh, economic dynamism, which oddly enough is... Um, is um, quite great. Uh, Belgium is the highest per capita exporter in the world. Uh, the Dutch speakers have become more confident. And because of the destruction of the Wallonian uh, economy, there are now large transfer uh, payments uh, between uh, the regions so that uh, Wallonia is now dependent on these transfer payments. Not surprisingly, then, the largest uh, political party in Flanders wants separation. Uh, they're nationalist and liberal parties. And the largest party in Wallonia is the Socialist Party, 
which of course wants the maintenance of the transfer payments. That's the whole of its policy. And neither of these two groupings has the capacity to form a government um, of unity in this country, um, which isn't very large, as you know. In fact, you can easily miss it on the train. <laughs> now, the conclusion that the Van Rompuys of the world would draw from these uh, well-known facts is that, well, first of all, they think it's very vulgar to allude to them. They think it's quite wrong that you should even mention them, these problems. Uh, and if you do mention them, that means that you're some kind of warmonger. Uh, because, as they say, we haven't had a war in Western Europe for 65 years, and for most of that 65 years, we've had a, a European Union... Um, and so the European Union has prevented war, which is a bit like really saying that you might as well say that, uh, and it would be as accurate, that the importation of avocados, uh, which also began after the war, uh, has prevented war in Europe. Well, the solution to the Belgian problem in the minds of people like Van Rompuy is to rope Estonia, Portugal, Greece into Belgium. Uh, and, of course, uh, many other countries. So what will not work with two groups of people will mysteriously work for 27 or more groups of people. <laughs> and this astonishing capacity by members of the European elite to deny the most evident reality is, in its way, uh, reminiscent of the ability of the intellectual elite of the interwar years uh, to confront the truth of the Soviet Union. Um, well, intention in politics may not matter as much as effect, but what can scarcely be denied uh, is that whatever its intentions, the European elite, of which Mr. Rompuy mm -hmm. is the finest flower, uh, is steadily and quite quickly dismantling uh, representative democracy in Europe. And we've already heard, you know, Greece has an unelected government, Italy has an unelected government, and so on and so forth. And we are probably getting a, a system that for once can almost be called fascist, even if there's not really, um, there's not yet any uh, violence associated with it. At best, the system will be technocratic, but it's very important to to remember that technocracy is not uh, synonymous with competence because you can easily have the soul of a technocrat without having the skill of a technician. Well, Mrs Merkel has suggested that we need a genuinely functioning European Parliament with powers to oversee the kind of fiscal union that is one of the preconditions of saving the euro, the other main one being inflation. But it's obvious that if such a parliament was real and became um, functional, it could and would uh, treat Germany as a milk cow um, with goodness knows what political consequences. In other words, our union can work only on condition that it is authoritarian. Uh, and the trouble is that while our politicians talk European, uh, they still have to act national. 
um, there's a complete disconnection between uh, their rhetoric and their reality, which they don't like to recognize. And the situation in Germany is instructive. Its population never wanted the euro, but the, the, um, the uh, political class went ahead anyway. And I've talked to quite a lot of people in France, and they don't see any danger at all in this. A lot of people see no danger at all in just changing the fundamental nature of your state without any popular uh, wish for it whatsoever. In fact, a wish that it should not be changed. The euro did, however, serve the interests of the German uh, economy uh, quite well for a time because the Germans were able and willing, uh, dare I say it, because they're Germans, uh, to restrict their labour costs. For example, their social overheads have gone down, their wages have not gone up. The standard of living has not gone up in Germany. There was no asset inflation in Germany at all. Uh, and... Uh, their trade surplus, therefore, is now equal to more than the trade deficit of France, Spain, and Italy uh, combined. And they used uh, quite a lot of this surplus to lend to the countries that were living beyond their means. They lent, for example, $150 billion in Ireland alone, which amounts to some uh, $40,000 man, woman, and baby in Ireland, so that a family, if there are any families, of four, uh, uh, has a debt to German banks of $160,000. Um, and of course, part of this loaned money was used to import German goods, a kind of BMW or Mercedes for every home uh, in the case of Ireland. Well, the Germans are now faced with the dilemma as to whether to save the euro by means of an expansion in the supply of euros, which they don't want. Uh, they don't have a very good folk memory of inflation. And in fact, the whole of Europe doesn't have a very good folk memory of inflation in Germany either. <laughs> or to allow a breakup break of the eurozone, um, which would very likely, for quite a long time, result in a... Uh, a, a, a decline in the demand for German goods and a consequent recession in that country which might last quite a long time and um, in that case it's, it's years actually of self-denial relative self-denial with living standards not having gone up despite being the most I mean, it's obviously causally related to the fact that it was the most powerful uh, industrial state in Europe, um, will all appear to have been in vain. And all of this has been brought about by the establishment of a currency which no one there wanted in the first place. <laughs> so it's hardly any wonder that Mrs. Merkel appears indecisive. She's being asked to square a circle uh, in circumstances in which the failure to do so is uh, potentially explosive. And we are on a, It's not impossible that there will be an explosion in Europe. There will be an explosion in, all, in many parts of Europe, I believe. 
So, in conclusion, I would say that if, we, if I had to define the European project, I would propose not that we are constructing Belgium, uh, but as a mission statement, I would say we are building uh, post-Tito Yugoslavia. <laughs> which is not altogether a, a cheerful thought. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tony. Um, we, we have time for some questions and comments. Um, I, I thought perhaps I'll start it off, Tony, by asking, um, in, near the end of your remarks, you said you predicted a, an explosion, if not a series of explosions in Europe. Um, uh, were you being metaphorical? What did, what did you mean by exploding oh, no, no, riots in the street? Yes, yes. Uh, um, can you say a little bit? Well, I, I mean, that? we've already today. There's been a very quite a large strike of, uh, of uh, public sector workers in Britain. And Britain is actually in the worst condition of any European state, in my opinion, with the exception of Greece. Um, and in fact, in many ways, it's the Greece of the North Sea. <laughs> and I, <I'm, laughs> I'm not talking of the Greece of Socrates or <laughs> talking of the Greece of Papandreou and so on, Mr. Caraman Lise. But um, um, there are all kind of, there's a huge uh, social conflict building up uh, in, uh, in many countries, not just Europe, uh, Britain. Um, the necessity to reduce government expenditure on things like um, social security, what you call welfare and other forms of government expenditure are uh, going to um, cause real hardship. We've smashed up all forms of social solidarity that does not go through the state in many parts of Europe, including in Belgium, for example. When that is withdrawn, if you give people subsidies and those subsidies are the means by which they live, and then you withdraw them, there is real trouble. I've recently been to uh, Middlesbrough, which was always a fairly miserable place, and it's quite clear that the main industry of uh, Middlesbrough, which used to be shipbuilding and uh, steel, iron and steel and that kind of thing, is now state-subsidized takeaway pizza. And it's no coincidence that the people are enormously fat. And many people are so fat, in fact, that by the age of 40, they need a, um, they need a wheelchair to walk, I mean, to go anyway. So that's one conflict. There's going to be the conflict between uh, the haves and the have-nots, but it's, that's not the only conflict there's going to be. There's the conflict between those who work in the private sector and the public sector, and we are seeing that in, in Britain. There's a strike today, and it's going to happen in many countries in Europe because there's a huge division between the public sector workers and the, and the privileges given them and those who work in the private sector. So there's all kinds of conflicts. I'm not saying that there will be a, actually a civil war, but there's the prospect of um, many conflicts, and it's not just in Britain. Um, I don't know where... What will, and I don't, incidentally, I don't think the United States is entirely immune from this possibility either. Any questions? Over. <coughs> well, 
Well, I think uh, in the uh, Switzerland, I mean, the big difference between Switzerland and uh, and uh, most European countries is the lack of power of the central government, because even such things as social security benefits are dis- are, are distributed cantonally or even subcantonally, uh, as for example, they were until recently on the little island of Jersey. They were they were. They were decided in a parish, actually, by the parish. But there's no other European country remotely like that, and you're certainly not going to get that from the Van Rompuys of the world, I can assure you. They're not arguing for uh, cantonalization of Europe, but rather for centralization with a few local powers, but, but nothing like that. So if, if, Britain, uh, if Europe were one large Switzerland... Uh, maybe it would work, but it's not going to be Switzerland. And, and incidentally, one must, one should also not underestimate completely the division within Switzerland, because increasingly uh, the German-speaking part does not speak French, and the French-speaking part does not speak German. Is that not an argument in favour of devolution in the UK? Oh well, I, there, there is. Yes, I mean, uh, all English people want the Scots to be independent. There is all. Uh, I, I mean, there is more support for Scottish independence in England than there is in Scotland, uh, because, uh, because of course, for the same reason that the Wallonians, uh, the uh, Fl- Flemish, want the uh, Wallonians to be independent. So um, there is. I mean, there is that. Uh, and there's a possibility. And, in fact, it would probably do the Scots a lot of good. I, I saw in The Spectator, I don't know whether I believe this, I, but it was in The Spectator for which I write, so I suppose it must be true, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that there are only 15,000 net taxpayers in the whole of Scotland. So... About the same as here, though. <laughs> New York or US? US. Is that right? But uh, anyhow, uh, so obviously that would have to end with Scottish independence, and that might be a very good thing for Scotland. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Behind that. Yes. Um, I'm wondering how, how much do you think the underlying crisis here is a uh, demographic uh, crisis of a very aging population, therefore a less dynamic market society together with unskilled uh, immigration, which is making the market think there's not going to be a lot of growth in the future, and therefore they're not going to be able to sustain uh, the debt. So it's a, it's a crisis, which is a demographic crisis, maybe in some sense a 
crisis of the West and of values? Um, well, certainly there is a demographic uh, crisis. I'm not sure how I, I, I'm not quite sure how serious that is as a factor because I've uh, uh, the fact is that an aging population uh, an aging population now can work for much longer. It will be forced to work for much longer, but will be able and willing to work for much longer, uh, so that uh, the working life will be extended. So I'm not absolutely convinced that that's the real problem. I was very interested uh, in, um, in Britain to know why, while we maintain very high levels of indigenous un unemployment, we were also uh, um, importing unskilled uh, labor from, well, actually all over the world, but particularly Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Uh, why is that? that you have people, millions of people, be doing nothing, and you're importing unskilled labor at the same time. And I've, I, perhaps you, you, you might have more ideas than mine, I thought of three factors. The first is that the people coming in were much better. I mean, anybody given a, a choice between a young Pole and a young British person would choose a young Pole. I mean, if, if sight unseen, behind uh, Rawls' veil of ignorance, you would uh, you would choose uh, you would choose the Pole. He would be better. He would have a better attitude to work. He would be better educated, and probably before very long, he would speak better English. <laughs> <laughs> I can assure you that's not very difficult. <laughs> so that's one uh, reason. The second is that there's no economic incentive for, or very little economic incentive for um, young British people to, to work. Because if they do work at the lower end of uh, the wage spectrum, they will, after a week, be perhaps at most $40 better off or something like that than if they don't work. And they lose all kinds of privileges. And they can easily do a bit of trafficking or or uh, burglary, or, uh, <laughs> and they do. Um, so, and, and the time's their own. So th there's not much incentive for them to work. And then there is geographical, uh, there are geographical reasons why they can't move uh, because of an extremely rigid housing market. If they have uh, so-called social housing, which is really anti-social housing, um, they can't move anywhere because it's a privilege which is not transferable. So they can't go anywhere, young Britons can't go anywhere in search of, lay, uh, in search of work. I mean, I recently went to a little island called Sark. And Sark is a very interesting little place because it was, uh, you can't get there by plane. Uh, it's a little island, you have to go to Jersey, you have to get a boat. Sometimes you can't go because the weather is so bad. Uh, there are no cars on Sark, there are only about 500 people. Uh, it was until recently the only feudal uh, society in, in uh, what had remnants of the feudal, that has a seigneur. And uh, when I got there, um, I found that there were Polish labourers there. <laughs> and it's extraordinary. I mean, they were unskilled Polish labourers. So Polish people can get from Poland to Sark, but they can't get from England to Sark. And that, I think, is an interesting uh, phenomenon.
So, uh, and these rigidities are even worse in other countries. I mean, the, yeah. Roy? Notwithstanding the rays of sunshine that you've unleashed upon us, <laughs> uh, I'm reminded of a great Grateful Dead song that says, it's even worse than it appears. Yeah. Uh, you've not mentioned the word Islam in your remarks. I'm wondering if you would discuss how that plays into all of this. Um, well, I'm not quite sure. I think it's actually not the fundamental, it's not the fundamental problem. And insofar as we have a problem with Islam, it's a, it's a problem of underlying confidence in the society. I'm not convinced uh, that, uh, that uh, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be a terrible nuisance, but I don't think it's going to be ultimately a terrible threat if we play our cards right. I mean, the problem in France, for example, if you go to, I mean, the problem, it's quite interesting to look at the difference between France and, and, um, and Britain in regard to Islam. Um, of course, the people come from different areas of the world. The French predominantly come, the French uh, Muslims predominantly come from North Africa. Ours come from Pakistan, mainly. Um, the French have got one thing right and the British have got uh, one thing right, but you need both things right for there to be uh, for there to be success. The French don't go in at all for multiculturalism because they don't really believe in other people's cultures. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sometimes I think they're right. Uh, and uh, so, of course, uh, uh, the the young Muslims are just brought up as if they were, you know, their ancestors were the Gauls and so on. That's what they're taught in school and so on. Um, unfortunately, the rigidity of the labour market soon shows that that is not real in practice. You know, when once they start trying to go out from the bonheur to look for work, the rigidity of the labour market destroys that idea. In Britain, on the contrary, we go in for multiculturalism with a... Um, but with a less rigid labour market. So the, the difference between a Muslim area in Britain and a Muslim area in France is very marked as far as, for example, the number of little um, businesses and so on is concerned. But we don't try and give them any sense that they're, they're British. So unfortunately, that kind of petty bourgeois society, second generation, is extremely dangerous, as we saw uh, from the... Uh, from the, the London bombings. The people who conducted that were certainly not economically hopeless. They were university students. They, they, one of them, I think, his father just bought him a Mercedes, so he couldn't have been on the bread line and so on. But nevertheless, we know from experience that disgruntled intellectuals are a very dangerous class. So if we could have a... a, a, a no multiculturalism plus a, a non-rigid labour market. That would, that would, I think, make a big difference. And another thing that would be very important is no family reunification. There must be no family reunification as a reason for uh, immigration because that just reinforces the most retrogressive uh, aspects of, uh, of the original society from which they come. Amanda? I'm squeezing two questions in one. The first being thinking about um, 
Mon uh, Quebec in the 70s and its uh, nationalist movement, which basically is petered out mm. and lost its strength because of, uh, because of economic reasons, and it's not economically viable. So I wonder if that's an example of the problem. But the other question isn't related to that. It's, it's do you see what similarities and dissimilarities do you see between the riots that took place in London this summer and Occupy Wall Street? Um, I do think, you, or do you see more similarities than dissimilarities? I think I see more dissimilarities than similarities. I mean, the, <coughs> the, as far as I understand it, I don't know, if, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, Wall Street, the Occupy Wall Street people are really fundamentally spoiled brats, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, whereas that was, I mean, whatever you say about the rioters in England, the vast majority of them, I mean, they were spoiled, but in a very different way. Um, they were, most of them, I, mean, I know that there were some middle-class people, but they were, they were very criminally inclined, as is a very large percentage now of British youth. Um, they were uh, unemployed, and worse than that, they were unemployable. And their problem was not that they had nothing, but that they deserved nothing. <laughs> and, um, and that's a terrible existential position to be in. And I think they know it, really. Um, I mean, they said, we have nothing. But, of course, they had received an education that had cost $80,000. They had never gone hungry. They'd never gone without clothes. They all have flat-screen TVs, without which, as we know, life is not possible. They had telephones and all the appurtenances of they didn't live where they wanted, they didn't live at the level they wanted, and all the rest of it. But they count that as nothing. Um, but their prospects are, 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 are dismal. Um, of those who were arrested, it turned out that 75% of them had criminal records. Um, and uh, uh, so I think it's a it's a different population and a, a different phenomenon. And the other thing, the, one of the things that the, the uh, <clears throat> one of the causes of the riots in Britain was the extreme leniency of the British uh, criminal justice system. These, uh, the, they were dealt with slightly more severely than they anticipated by the courts, of course, which came as a shock and the Guardian said it was disproportionate. And in that, in a sense, it was disproportionate because it was disproportionate to the leniency that had preceded it. Um, but just to give you an ex a very graphic example, uh, the police detect one in 12 uh, street robberies. So if you're robbed on the streets of London, there's a one in a 12 chance that the police will catch the person, and almost certainly because of the corrupt way, the, corrupt, the intellectually corrupt way in which statistics are gathered, it's probably fewer than one in, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in 12. And then you're brought before the court, and of the convicted street robbers, one in eight is sent to prison. So that means that one in 100 street robbers is uh, sent to prison. 
and, and if he set, goes to prison, it's for a very short time. So really the question is not why there are so many robberies, but why there are so few. <laughs> and I suppose it's just as well that uh, we don't teach children arithmetic anymore. <laughs> But, uh, so that was a very powerful I mean that was a very powerful reason why there were those riots in London they, those, they knew that they or they thought they were acting with impunity 